0: Do you want the title? The first one I'm going to read.
1: I'm writing this from my mother's apartment.
0: It's called Orange.
1: All I could think about was being written into her life story.
0: She made up a story. About what it. was the inspiration oh. for the story? My
1: story is called Cigarettes.
0: What was the I genesis? Mm-hmm. Was I used to be a almost you? dependent Dear B. on a
1: voice. In a I want to talk coffee. to you, <laughs> <laughs> and the conversation starts.
0: Hello. Welcome to Off the Page, a podcast of stories, essays, and poetry from the Stanford University writing community. In each episode, a Stanford author will read a piece of their writing and talk with us about their craft and process. I'm Mark Lebowski, Jones lecturer in the Creative Writing Program. In this episode, Georgina Beatty will read her short story, Shelter Seekers. Georgina Beatty is the author of the short story collection, The Party Is Here, from Freehand Books. Her fiction has appeared in New England Review, The Walrus, The New Quarterly, The Fiddlehead, Prism, and elsewhere. As an actor and playwright, she's worked with theaters across Canada and internationally. A 2020-2022 to Stegner Fellow in Fiction, she holds an MFA from the University of British Columbia, has been supported by fiction residencies at McDowell and the Banff Center, and was a screenwriting resident at the Canadian Film Center. She's currently a Jones Lecturer in Creative Writing at Stanford University.
1: Shelter Seekers Dear Scholarship Liaison Officer, The $4,000 Daniel White Foreign Study Scholarship, administered through the Government of Canada, funded three months in Argentina to investigate how one region is adapting its approach to housing in response to climate change. This research was in support of my MA thesis in Sociocultural Anthropology. Though unconventional in form, long overdue, and in excess of the stipulated two-page limit, the final report that follows does, as required, account for my research activities, problems encountered, and outcomes achieved. Ms. Leah Powell or Miss Olivia Simon, or whichever SLO, Scholarship Liaison Officer, is now managing this email account, and if Ms. Powell or Miss Simon have moved on, please convey my gratitude for their efficient and impersonal correspondences over the course of my tenure as award holder. I failed. The money is gone. However, Article 3.6 in the Award Holder's Guide states that, despite advanced preparations, the researcher may not know where the search will lead. It is on this basis that I submit the following report. I hope you will deem that I have, in a manner, reckoned with shelter in the Anthropocene. Month 1 I flew to Patagonia as planned. From the window of the plane, the needle-thin points of mountains punctured the clouds. Somewhere down there was the small community where I was to be a participant observer. I would join a team of researchers measuring the climactic impact of homes built of different materials—wood, clay, brick, straw. I belted in for landing, the award-holder's guide open on my lap. A portrait of Daniel White, the promising young anthropologist in whose honor my scholarship had been named, beamed up at me. We descended into a densely forested valley— the shadow of the plane tracking over a preternaturally blue lake. I flipped a few pages in the guide and read, Because it seeks to understand the unknown, field research often entails risk. I was prepared for any eventuality. I had packed my tent, camp stove, and sleeping bag, expecting to be in a remote location. Days would be spent building clay houses, nights around the fire with a team of researchers drinking frenette and telling stories. I even bolstered myself against the possibility that I might, out of contact with my husband and immersed in fieldwork out on the pampas, feel situational attraction to one of the impassioned, brilliant researchers with whom I was working. I would not act on this attraction. I would comport myself like the Daniel White Foreign Study Scholarship recipient that I was. "'People will be interested in your work as soon as you say Patagonia,' said Dr. Felix Hernandez, my host supervisor who met me at the airport." They find it mysterious, alluring. He looked about my father's age with wire-rimmed glasses and an elbow-patched cardigan. Here was an internationally renowned expert who measured the CO2 output of various activities necessary to life—food, housing, heating—hoisting my backpack into his trunk, welcoming a complete stranger into his work. He drove me to his self-made home, built not of clay as I'd expected, but of wood. The house was set into a hill that a rambling garden climbed. He pulled a plum from a tree and offered it to me. On his deck, beans bubbled away in a homemade solar cooker, sun-through glass. Inside, the home was open concept, more as a matter of function than aesthetic. The floors were unfinished plywood. A kitchen occupied one corner, seeds germinating in wet paper towel. A terrarium of crickets chirping, insects which, I later learned, he would grind to make a protein-rich flower. Hernandez's desk was stacked with papers, scientific journals, and books with gold-embossed titles. Bleak House, Hard Times, Great Expectations. In English, kept up, he explained by reading Dickens, he bemoaned that people protest any increase in gas prices but neglect to insulate their homes. Mosquito mines, he exclaimed. Look! He pulled a piece of paper, a gas bill, from atop a pile, tapping where a column of zeros added up to one larger, bolded zero. I insulate and I haven't had to turn on the gas this year, but no one cares about data. He ate bread and waved his other hand in the air as if the numbers and calculations were a swarm of gnats on an early summer's evening. This is why we need you, social science. Tell a story and people will care. For lunch, Hernandez made huevos revueltos and fried up a zapaito squash until it glowed a soft neon yellow. We talked about our lives. It turned out that he had a son about my age who lived in San Francisco, who was about to have his first child. Fantastico, I said. Leah Olivia, though it may be impolitic to mention in a scholarship report, I wanted a baby. I did not advertise this. In fact, I had discomfited many a dinner party by talking about how irresponsible it was, at a climatic level, to bring children into the world. At the same time, I wanted to be pregnant. My husband, a musician, thought we could wait until we were in a more stable position, but something in me wanted to do it recklessly, immediately, yesterday, three years ago, and definitely upon my return. Hernandez and I talked about the difference between mitigating climate change and adapting. He speculated that I was more interested in the latter, while his work was more focused on the former. No hay problema, I said. I could adapt. I couldn't wait to meet the team. Hernandez showed me to the small bachelor place he'd found for me to rent, $1,000 of my foreign studies scholarship. It was not out on the Pampas, but was an uninsulated addition behind a suburban medical clinic. There was a hot plate, a single carcinogenic-looking pan, and a little half-bathroom with a shower stall, minimal but operational. The murmur of medical consultations filtered through the wall. There was no Wi-Fi, but I could text my husband, little thirty-five-cent blips, and I did so to say, "'Miss you,' to mitigate against any pain of separation, which I assumed he might feel more than I, given that he was at home and I abroad. That night I couldn't sleep. A dog began to bark at two a.m., and others followed, high-pitched yips and low-drawn-out howls. The next day I noted the construction sites on either side of the small clinic, empty but for the dogs. I counted six it seemed they'd been left to guard the lots and, alone at all hours, they barked incessantly at invisible threats. Any silence over the coming months was filled with anticipatory dread before the next volley began. Leah, Olivia, I should say that, in addition to you and the memory of Daniel White in whose honour this award was named, I had made a commitment to my husband. I didn't mention this in my original application because it seemed outside the scope of the scholarship— privileged, heteronormative, and offered nothing to address pressing concerns for society. But before becoming a prospective MA in anthropology, I spent the past decade working as a theater actor, which I mention only because my work kept taking me away from my husband and away from my own home. For six weeks at a time, I would sublet rooms. Other people's nephews and nieces on the fridge. Other people's lucky-waving cat tchotchkes. Other people's inspirational quotes. The course of true love never did run smooth other people's jars of kombucha that needed burping. It may be relevant to note that my interest in shelter in the Anthropocene comes not from an objective scientific place, but from my life, and maybe that was my first failing to make the personal academic. At any rate, in the fall prior to my tenure as an award holder, I had agreed to a five-month acting contract in which I played an existential speaking lamb, the ghost of Sylvia Plath, a viciously ambitious millennial intern, and a suicidal waitress who does successfully off herself, all of which should give you some idea about how I come across in the world away from home. The time in Argentina was the final stretch of my own precarity before I would ground myself by choice in the stable future represented by my degree and the home with my husband. The only way that this future would hold was if the work made possible by the Daniel White Foreign Study Scholarship mattered enough to justify the extended absence from being a participant observer in my own life. By the end of week three, the research team and community with whom I was supposed to work felt like some fiesta that I just couldn't find. I looked over our email history. Hernandez had indeed used the word equipo. Maybe I had further trust to gain before I would garner an invitation. I decided to be direct. I'd like to meet the team." He said that Veronica, studying the polluting effects of wood-burning stoves, was now based in Chile. It was a shame I'd just missed Hugo, who was studying the carbon emissions of different diets in northern Mexico. "'Quando van a regresar?' I'd stumbled on the wording. Come back where?" he asked, taking a bag of frozen crickets from his freezer. It took me another week to understand that the team was individual doctoral students, each supervised by Dr. Hernandez from afar. There were to be no nights around the fire, no houses to build, no romance, no community. Though my plans dropped like eggs, splattered on the floor of Hernandez's orange and blue kitchen, I maintained the bearing of an award holder and did not belie the dismay whipping itself into small peaks of despair. I had ten weeks left in my research trip. Hernandez announced that he would be going to Santiago for a week to lobby politicians to mandate home insulation. I would stay to do my research. There was still a town 10 kilometers away. Surely there'd be something of use there. I went to the social housing office, the independent radio station, the library, an educational demonstration farm, and asked, ¿Qué haces frente al cambio climático? What do you do in front of climate change? Though most people looked at me as though I had asked what they were doing to prepare for the unicorn invasion, I did finally meet Enrique, a subsistence farmer who invited me to stay with his family. I'm going to be a participant observer, I texted my husband, who responded with three thumbs-up emojis. Enrique's home had white plaster walls and dirt floors, a gradation rather than a threshold between outside and in. He told me that, on the farm, they were not so much making new decisions because of climate change as they were maintaining a low-impact, traditional way of life. He and his wife, Lucia, gave me a tour of the property, the back of which overlooked a valley and the mountains beyond. This was a place where access to beauty was not yet predicated on wealth. Research Activity Enrique and I slopped his pigs. The hogs were so big that they seemed like prehistoric megafauna. I had to keep them away with a stick in order to get the food in their trough. They barked and snapped. They did not oink. Enrique told me that, though there was corruption in Argentina, there was also liberty. You could do what you wanted to do. They could put out a call on Facebook for building supplies. One person might have a door, another a window, and build a house in a week. As I lay awake on the sofa bed that night, everything felt possible. I texted my husband, Let's do it. Do what? All of it, I thought, have a house and a baby, plant a garden, be self-sustaining, but I didn't send it, knowing how a hint of mania would create a static spark in the warm bed back in Canada. I did text two names, Wild, Loose, that I liked for a baby. He texted back, You want to name our children Loose and Wild? I thought of him, of home, of his worn-out waffle pajama pants. I miss you, I texted. And I did, Leah, Olivia, acutely. But I believe a problem encountered is that I erroneously equated the feeling of missing, which requires absence, with love, which demands, from time to time, presence. The next morning, it was pouring, and it seemed absurd to pursue any further questioning along the lines of shelter and climate change. It was a small farm, and the hogs needed feeding. One can only live another's life for so long. An anthropologist would just get in the way. Leah Olivia... To address an unexpected outcome, the marriage doesn't make it. Which, okay, anything can happen to a relationship, nothing is guaranteed, and the Daniel White Foreign Studies Scholarship is just what happened to this one. I don't want you to think I'm holding that out as some kind of excuse, though it may continue to come up as I account for the shortcomings of my time abroad. Month two. I just needed another, say, six case studies to justify the scholarship. I went looking, but people were just living their lives, making individual decisions. There was no grand, coordinated approach to climate change, a problem that people were not experiencing on a day-to-day basis. Hernandez returned and had me over for lunch. Mosquito mines. By and large, he told me, people would rather get new wood-burning stoves, terrible for the environment but tangible, than have subsidized retrofitting for insulation, hidden within the walls and therefore less politically popular. I can't wait to see how you will turn this data into a story, he said, as if that had always been the plan, as if he were waiting for me to do the world's shittiest magic trick, transubstantiation of charts on climactic impact into great expectations. I don't mean to cast aspersions on Dr. Hernandez. Any and all failings are entirely mine. I just didn't know how to respond. As we ate lunch, I tried to keep saying C at regular intervals to indicate attention. There had been a windstorm the previous night. Branches thwacked at the window of my room, and the dogs hadn't stopped for a moment. Awake, I turned to the award-holder's guide. At the back, following the glossary and endnotes, was a finely printed paragraph on the eponymous Daniel White, which disclosed that he had in fact cut his first postgraduate field study short by taking his own life. "'You're working too hard,' Dr. Hernandez wrapped his knuckles on the table." I snapped awake, having slipped on a patch of sleep. I wondered what work he imagined I'd been doing. It's okay, he said. Enjoy yourself. You're young. I did not feel young. I asked if he had any journal articles written by himself or members of the team. He handed me a stack. I came up with a new plan. I would change my thesis and do an anthropology of one, Hernandez. I could call it the mitigator, and I would focus on his efforts to change his fellow citizens' mosquito mines. Using his system, I would calculate my own climatic impact as a starting point, and then would use my research to communicate how anyone could calculate and shrink theirs. I consulted the award holder's guide and noted that the agency must approve any changes to the proposed activity. I did not send an update. I was not scared of you, Leah, Olivia, but the function you employ— I worried that, if I raised the specter of deviation from the plan, another scholarship liaison officer would be introduced, a Rachel, and she would demand that I repay the $4,000 immediately, which would leave me stranded in Patagonia. I should also mention that $4,000 for three months of research does not go very far when air travel is taken into account. And it may mean that an award holder ends up, as I did, living on a budget of $40 a week and sneaking a few extra plums from a host supervisor's garden, trying to be casual about one's great hunger. And I'm sure you don't want to hear about what I ate for breakfast or my feelings, though I would argue that these aspects, under-nourishment, say, and profound isolation, did play a role in my decision-making and the dubious results achieved. I did text my husband about the change in approach. "'Go for it,' he said, followed by emojis of hearts echoing off of one another, a pirate ghost, a volcano, a dinosaur, a fried egg, and a penguin. I found his enthusiasm and randomness hard to integrate, and turned my phone off, not understanding that lack of action could also have an impact.' Using the articles, I calculated my own annual carbon output. I expected to be at the low end, but it turns out that I was above average. I had nullified every low-emissions aspect of my life—vegetarianism, socialism, nihilism—by accepting the Daniel White Foreign Studies Scholarship and the travel it entailed. Another sleepless night. I wondered what my impact would be if I poisoned the dogs— It would probably be a good thing, climatically speaking, given that owning a pet adds significantly to one's carbon footprint. It was about this time, Leah Olivia, that I spent approximately $40 of my scholarship on the data required to Google your names, which led me to your respective LinkedIn profiles and allowed me to see that you, Leah, have an undergraduate degree in philosophy, and you, Olivia, an MA in public policy. I thought back to the email to which I'd attached my flight confirmation, and recalled that you, Olivia, had signed off with, "'Have a great day!' I wondered if, were this scholarship not a framing device for our interactions, we might not all be fast friends. I wondered if you might actually want to hear how it was going, if you might have some advice, which is when I dialed the number listed in the award-holder's guide and encountered a labyrinthine welcome menu. And yes, I had drunk a beer, a one-liter bottle, which I'm sure is an ineligible expense." while waiting for an option in the vicinity of my needs. I looked at Hernandez's article on the carbon output of different home construction methods. The overall calculation took everything into account, including carbon embodied in each worker's lunch, which is greater for methods such as clay that require more exertion, as workers must consume more calories. I opened a second bottle of cerveza negra and entered the first three digits of your respective surnames into the directory, but the system didn't seem to recognize them, or maybe scholarship liaison officers aren't listed to protect them from the intimacy-seeking of award holders, and I do understand. Though I wasn't able to reach you, Leah, Olivia, I was feeling better after the beer. I spotted a way to expand and build on Hernandez's method in order to calculate one's impact at the most detailed level. The next day, Hernandez invited me for lunch, but I declined. Suddenly, I had a great deal of work to do. Month 3. Leah, Olivia, I would note that in the award holder's guide there are allowances for pregnancy, allowances for an increase in impact, for beginnings and growth, but no allowances for diminishing one's impact or things falling apart. I wonder how Daniel White would feel about the way his legacy has been fed into the machine of infinite growth. I calculated the climatic effect of each and every thought of blinking, shitting, sobbing, and alternatively the effect of repressing a feeling. I worked day and night. What I didn't understand was how to account for the variables, the blind spots in one's understanding of impact. What about when one has an emotional effect on another person, which then causes them to take an action, which then has an environmental impact, either positive or negative? If, for instance... My husband sends an email listing 10 things he likes about me, and I respond with, I will talk when the work is done, and he says, the work will never be done, and I send a ticker tape of baby names, Juniper, Willa, Roxanne, Lemon, and he replies, how about you come home first, and those messages zing between two hemispheres, what is the net effect of the choices he or I make in response, whether it's sleeping an average of four hours a night, as I did, or texting streams of animal emojis with no content, as he did, or traveling away from home and living in an eternal future in which I will be better and more conscientious, but only after I've finished being a Daniel White foreign studies scholarship award holder. Can one feel and feel, and will it all be climatically neutral, as long as no action is taken and the feeling is not imposed on another? Our effects are infinite. There's no end. Everything can be broken down into smaller and smaller units. I was lying very still in the grass— considering the carbon implications of different deaths, natural and unnatural, taking my research to its inevitable conclusion, when Hernandez appeared in the backyard and yelled, Get in the car! I registered a stinging and looked down to find my arms coated in ash. My pages of calculations scattered in the wind. Then a rock the size of a baby's head bashed through the roof of my rented room. Hernandez drove us back to his place, by which time it was raining tiny stone darts. We dashed from the car to his cellar. A volcano had gone off in Chile, he said, launching into a story about how indigenous people had known not to settle here. They knew that Chilean volcanoes deposit their debris on the Argentinian side of the mountains, but of course the colonizers thought they knew better and built anyway. They thought the word border would be enough. I thought of the word marriage. Hernandez rummaged around in the cold room for some food and wine. We ate by flashlight. His daughter-in-law had gone into labor that morning, but there was no cell service down here, no way to check in. "'How's the work going?' he asked. "'I hadn't spoken to another person in three weeks. "'No say.' I was still half-tracking my impact as I opened the lid of a jar of pickled beans. Anything greater than zero felt like failure. He nodded as if he'd always known the research was fruitless. His, as much as mine. "'No one changes their behavior because of these numbers.' He drank his wine. I can't wait to retire. I'll work with my hands. I'll work in the garden. He told me the Argentine saying about how to have a good life. Hijo libro arbol. Have a child. Write a book. Plant a tree. The flashlight began to dim as the battery faded. Child. Book. Tree. Problem encountered. A tree cannot absorb the impact of the other two actions. When we emerged from the cellar, time had stopped. The world was washed of color, not so much white as blank, no distinction between sky and ground, horizon and lake. I packed up and ignored the further rent paid on the apartment. For the first time as an award holder, I felt free. Any and all expectation was wiped away. We were in a vacuum. The world was unreactive. Any impact would be absorbed. Nothing was too much. I set out on a long dirt road towards the bus terminal, towards home and my husband, the man who'd decided to shelter with me. The countryside was deserted, the feeling of a snow day, suspension, smoke in the air. The tall roadside grass was strewn with ash-covered trash, diapers, plastic bags, the silver foil of candy wrappers, a lone sock, half of a sofa, a black-and-white shirt that looked like one of mine. Everything in the bushes seemed familiar. Time felt scrambled, as if all my impact was laid out, items prefiguring their loss. At one point I looked down at the road and there was a passport, navy blue, against the white dust. All my nerve endings retracted in a panic. When I opened it, there was my unsmiling photo. It must have fallen out of my pocket. I gripped it tightly for the rest of the walk, but it still seemed possible that I might look down and find it gone. Just before I reached the terminal at the side of the road... I saw the bottom quarter of a dead dog sticking out of a large black garbage bag with what looked like cement protruding from its anus. The red plastic tie on the bag cinched around the body in a bow. It made me feel like maybe I'd killed one of the dogs next door and didn't remember. Maybe the diaper way back was mine too, from a baby that I'd forgotten somewhere, or one I'd forgotten to have. According to the award holder's guide, It is sometimes difficult to ascertain the beginning and end of a qualitative research project. This was not my experience. The wind whisked up the fine volcanic ash, particulate coating my lungs. I closed my eyes and let go of Daniel White, allowing him to move on to the next award holder. My research leads me to conclude that a society that makes decisions on the sole basis of carbon impact is not healthier, but would be made up of slip-thin nudists who dwell in cocoon-like sacks hung from the ceiling of a large communal room. They don't exercise, and they subsist on vegetable broth. They refuse to speak and deny all relationships, no love or hate, too much energy. Articles advising people against children, pets, meat, and dairy are provocative enough, but honestly, Leah, Olivia, based on my calculations, the best way to minimize impact is to cease to be alive. However, I've yet to read anything in The Guardian titled Save the Planet, Kill Yourself, and I suspect this is an unacceptable conclusion for the government of Canada as well. Leah, Olivia, this is not to assign blame, but if I had unrealistic expectations, I would gently posit that there is something about the scholarship application that encourages overreaching, an idealized version of what is possible. I could have failed in an interesting way. I could have become a fringe survivalist or traveled to Italy, taken a lover, spent $4,000 on hedonism and beauty. Instead, I just fell short. To atone to you, the government, and the memory of Daniel White... I propose a repayment plan, $33 a month, for the next decade. When I finally charged my phone, there were five minutes of dings, messages piling up. Though it seems artificial to include both a volcano and a flood in the same final report, that is the truth about the extreme times in which we are living. There had been flooding back home, and my husband had been dealing with all of our possessions, water damaged, lost. I looked at the timestamps. It had happened five days earlier. Sorry, I texted. Can I do anything? He called, and the live time ringing felt electric. Where have you been? Working. A pause. I thought we might have lost connection. Then, Do you ever think about how you affect other people? Yes, was all I could say.
0: Hi, Georgina. Hi, Mark. Thank you for being here on Off the Page and reading that story, Shelter Seekers, from your collection, The Party's Here. Can I ask you first what the inspiration for that piece was, how
1: it got started? Shelter Seekers is, well, when I was doing my MFA, my thesis, I thought I would write a short story collection wherein all of the stories were structured in a way that mirrored physical structures and physical shelters. And so I wrote a proposal for an international study grant and went to Argentina and had a different experience than I anticipated, which has some parallels to this story. Of course, it's quite fictional. There was no volcano. Everything else is true. No, but that was where it started, was that I went to Argentina and was working with this host supervisor in Bariloche, and then I had to write the final report for the grant which kind of suggested this structure of problems encountered, results achieved. And all of the quotes from the Award Holder's Guide are verbatim. So I kind of wrote the story as a release valve from the pressures of this rigid bureaucratic form that I submitted, which is quite a different form. It's, you know, it is two pages that adheres to that form. And then this was my creative response to that experience.
0: Well, and like, So much of the humor of the story comes from the narrator's attachment to that terminology, protocol, and the bureaucratic terms. And I just laughed out loud when I first read, I would conduct myself like an award recipient. I mean, (laughs) she's just so invested in the gravitas of the Daniel White scholarship that it's hilarious. But now knowing that bit of backstory, I'm curious, the elements of the somewhat satirical or parodic elements that are in this piece, was that there from the beginning? Is that you just responding to this sort of Anadine language? <laughs> or is that you also perhaps making fun of yourself in a way?
1: I think it's all of those things. I'm quite earnest about bureaucratic language. I'm enchanted by it. I find it so rich and suggestive in terms of creative possibilities. I just find it so compelling. And so the opportunity Yeah, to engage with it. It felt very satirical and very serious at the same time. I mean, the dilemma that it stemmed from felt quite real. And then the ways that bureaucracy is devised to talk about these things, whether that's climate change or academic institutions, things like this, governmental institutions, the way that it obfuscates in an attempt to clarify, I just find it so absurd and fascinating. And I'm drawn to it as a creative source of inspiration.
0: It's really interesting to think about using forms like that, because I think in creative writing workshop land, we tend to think of finding really original language and language that is really personal and idiosyncratic. But of course, as day-to-day human beings, we work with cliches and receive structures and yeah whether we're composing an email or writing a report for work we're dealing in different vernaculars that's actually more often how we express ourselves than like wolfian lyricism and i think in this story it actually makes for the sort of beautiful tension between the narrator's earnestness and high-mindedness and anguish and increasingly kind of losing it but all being contained in this language that seems so incommensurate to what it's trying to express
1: yeah Or Dickens, you know. (laughs) It's interesting that looking back on this story, too, on a sentence-by-sentence level, it isn't really a sentence-level story. It isn't the most beautiful language, say. I think I really did adhere as much as I could to the form of the final report. And then the satire comes from where it escaped that or couldn't contain it, or the sentences had to go longer and longer to try to encapsulate all of this character's spinning out about impact. There's a different motor for it. So it kind of feels like an outlier in terms of talking about creative writing or something like that, because it's intentionally hewing to a different value in language that is functional rather than evocative or something like that. I think this is a a common tension that we all encounter because we're all always writing applications and being asked to speak about our writing in a certain way and justify it in these grand terms that it's just a story. I can't change the world with a story. Yeah, with my $4,000 research grant.
0: At what point in the drafting of the story, or maybe it was there from the beginning, did the narrator's marriage and her relationship with her husband back home also become a factor? In peace?
1: It was a really rangy story. It took a while to find this form. It went to a lot of places. So I think, when did the husband come in? I think, pretty early. In the editing process, it was interesting because an editor wanted it to come later in what one might expect in a kind of plot arc progression that at a climactic moment, the marriage ends. But I really didn't want it to be about the end of a marriage. So I had to think about why it was important that halfway through the story, the marriage ends, that she says, I just need to let you know that it doesn't make it. It's not about that. It was there from the beginning, I think, that tension between a relationship at home and the the work that is more important that's supposed to ultimately bring one into a positive relationship, but through doing the opposite or something like that, through leaving. Yeah, I think it came in pretty early as the personal valence. There's so much sort of technical, boring, quote unquote, language in there and, and talk about actual carbon calculations of the sandwich you eat for lunch. And you require less calories if you're a creative writing instructor and, and more calories if you're
0: working with it. clay. <laughs>
1: exactly. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. I mean, it's, it's like the old, I think, Grace Paley quote about like, I know I have a story when I have two stories, right? You've got the, yes. the yeah. wonky valence and personal. Do you see this narrator as someone who is using their research and using their grant as a way to? void moving forward in their personal life? Is this like a large procrastinating technique? I was just wondering, why is it so necessary to do this before she can sort of, quote, start her real life?
1: That also came up in the editing, the kind of saying that this doesn't look like a marriage in a way. <laughs> like Why doesn't she just go home? And so I think there is something defensive in the narrator that looking for some excuse to justify leaving yet again. But then I think her concerns are earnest as well, this kind of trying to grapple with climate change on an individual level. And I do see them as kind of around 30 or something like that. And probably a narrator who hasn't learned about home. I mean, maybe it's about home really, hasn't learned about home, is trying to learn about home through this, in kind of the wrong way, going maybe this academic climate change focus thing will help create home, but she's doing it through the opposite. She's not seeing that she's been that little aside where she's been running away from any kind of conventional understanding of what home is and is sort of trying to say, can I find it through going madly off in all directions? And so partly a procrastination.
0: I also wondered if there was this unarticulated way in which she thought like, well, if I do this research so amazingly, I will then... Fix climate change and thus I will have a safe planet that I can move forward with life.
1: So that she can feel okay about wanting what she wants. Like, she doesn't feel okay about wanting what she wants, nor does she feel okay about not wanting to be with her husband. Like, clearly she keeps leaving and she finds her desires kind of reprehensible and her very existence to be too much and doesn't quite know how to reckon with it except through this what act of almost atonement or something like that. Or trying to do something like, can she neutralize her impact? And we do this thing as a culture where you are deciding how many children to have or whether or not to get a pet based on climate change impact. And I'm not sure that that's exactly how our, our brains and bodies and hearts work. I think few people are having children and going like, well, I want to exacerbate climate change by having this child or by having this relationship with an animal or something. So I think she's kind of falling for the way that it's framed sometimes in the larger world. And then it's kind of meeting the limits of that and trying to figure out for herself, okay, can I make decisions in this way? Is there a way that I can justify this and feel okay about what I want and who I am or not? I don't think she gets to the end of it.
0: Well, and I think that is what the form of the story and the bureaucratic language give you is this weird tragicomic tension. She sincerely wants to do something. And yet her research-oriented mind leads her to this absurd conclusion that like, kill yourself, save the planet. She's just... yeah. Hang upside down, naked, sit broth, have no emotions, <laughs> do nothing, you know, climate change solved. Yeah. So there's a way in which the story is both making fun of, but also sincerely grappling with the existential threat of our era. Yeah. Something which I believe you have in common with the protagonist is a background in theater. Mm-hmm. And you refer to the protagonist having been sort of a peripatetic performer. For some time. And that also I think relates to this ambivalent relationship toward home and stability. Because it almost seems like the way she envisions the research campus is going to be like a play somewhere. We're just going to be hanging out late at night, gossiping and getting drunk in this kind of romantic Bohemian way. And then I'll move on to the next cohort rather than the sort of continuity and stability of heteronormative family life.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Which she's terrified of and can't quite name. Yeah. There's some part of her that is choosing this leaving all the time and And I think some of that is the way that heteronormative, stable life is broken as well. So I think that's an aspect of it that she doesn't totally see. It's kind of a blind spot in the way she's operating. So when I left theater school, I started making plays with a collective of people. And there was a kind of climate focus to some of my early theater work. And so that was the early writing I was doing was often interview-based, verbatim-based writing on our Feet. So there was often nothing on the page, but we were putting plays together through aural and interview methods. So I was doing a lot of creation based theater in addition to acting in plays that were written, classic and new plays. And then I had trouble explaining my ideas in a collective theater based way. Not all of my ideas were translating into theater, they were kind of zany. And it just was too much for me to get them out verbally. And I had always resisted writing. People would say, it seems like you're a decent. Writer and I resisted it. Both my parents were journalists, and so maybe I wanted to do something different. And I really loved acting. I love doing things with people, and the community that came from acting. I really love. Short answer is, I don't think I chose. I just started writing. Fulfilled a certain side of myself that wasn't being fulfilled as an interpreter, and I felt like I could express myself somehow through fiction. Fiction felt so expansive to me and capacious. And I think best through writing. And so all of these kind of strands of odd thoughts, I could kind of pull together and shape into something through writing and rewriting. And it was activating for me and fulfilling in a kind of different way. I was acting as my main job, and then I did an MFA kind of secretly, not seeing that there would ever be a a life in it for me, but it was kind of what I, I needed. And so I was pursuing that on the side, but I knew it was the thing that was fulfilling me the most. And it kind of kept taking up more and more space and I kept turning towards it more and more. And eventually I got the Stegner Fellowship and I had a paycheck that was attached to writing. And so I was able to do that as my main thing, which is kind of what I had started to want more and more in my heart. And I still never really chose to leave theater. It's just that the writing Took over, but I see them as kind of complementary practices, though very different.
0: Well, and then that is the other thing I wanted to ask you. How do you see your background in both playwriting and role interpretation feed into your writing a fiction now? Because I mean, in Shelter Seekers, this is a very voice driven piece. It's obviously a first person, mm-hmm. you know, it reads so beautifully. I could imagine it as a monologue of a character in something, but I know you've written many other types of stories. So How do you see that your acting background feed into your fiction?
1: I'll probably continue to have different thoughts about this. Right now, I think it's mostly rhythm because I'm accustomed to learning, to learning lines, but but kind of incorporating them into an embodied experience. And so I think I have a sense of what sounds right and feels right. And it's kind of just rhythmic. And so when I'm going through any story, it feels more musical than literary sometimes where I'm going, oh something's wrong there. And it's the rhythm of it. It's the kind of musicality of speech, or it strikes a wrong tone. So it's probably impacting my dialogue and things like that. But I don't feel like it's very precious. Like I don't feel like I become characters. I'm not acting. I'm not putting on a costume and going, I'm the character. I'm going to write this. I stay myself. But I think I catch the voice of the character. And then I think I'm like trying to stay true to whatever their rhythm is, whether that's a neurotic academic or a male park ranger who's on a mission to save the last desert tortoise or whoever it might be.
0: Well, thank you so much, Georgine, for being here to talk to us and for talking about this story. Where can people find more of your work?
1: Yeah, right now, most of the stories are in The Party Is Here, which is available from Freehand Books. There are a few stories online through my website and I'm working on a novel, but just following that voice slowly. (laughs) So for now, it's The Party Is Here. Thank you. Thank you
0: off the page is produced by the stanford storytelling project and the creative writing program this episode was produced by isabel edgar and myself with support from jackson roach and laura davis thanks to jonah willigans for his supervision and christina Oblatza and daniel hulaganga at the creative writing program for their generous support to the stanford storytelling project we'd like to thank the Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education, Stanford Arts, and Bruce Braden. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. For more Stanford writing, author events, and workshops, visit creativewriting.stanford.edu and storytelling.stanford.edu. I'm Mark Lebowski. Thanks for listening.